Well, it's accounting time at Eastern Gate, and uh, we are uh, in the midst of a series of messages uh, doing an accounting of our affection. Some of you have been uh, in the midst of doing an accounting of your assets, and that is adding up what it is that you made and and uh, subtracting what it is that you're uh, going to uh, deduct and uh, filling out that uh, form uh, 1040 and uh, trying to figure out how much you're going to have to pay or maybe get back uh, in taxes. I was reading about the form 1040, about uh, how it is that 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 form came to be named uh, 1040 uh, this week, and I discovered that it's because for every uh, $50 that you make, you get 10 and the government gets 40. Uh, well, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that is what I read, just in case you're wanting to know. I didn't make um, that up. But there's a time to do an accounting of our assets, to add, it, add up what it is um, that you're going to have to pay and uh, what it is that you're going to get back. And, and it's important for us to do that. And I'm going to say to you, it's important to be honest about uh, your taxes. God's people ought to be as honest as they can be, but that's not what my message is about, and you know that, and that is if it's important for us to do an accounting of our assets, how much more is it important for us to do an accounting of our affection? And that is that you and I need to stop and we need to do uh, sort of do some adding and subtracting and and looking at where we're at with regards to the affection or the love uh, in our hearts, the love that we're expressing through our lives. This is such an important area of our life. And that is who we love and how we love. And, and uh, the Bible exalts this uh, area of our life as being extremely important. It's important in the life of the believer. As a matter of fact, it's by this that all men know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love one to another. It is a chief characteristic of a disciple of Christ. It's one of the main, listen, it's one of the most important things about a church. The Bible says and that we love each other. Uh, and uh, that we love our Lord. Uh, it's a, listen, it's important in the law. Jesus said the law, the entire Old Testament law, hinges on loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as uh, yourself. So doing an accounting of our affection is extremely important. It's important because sometimes we may not be exactly where we think we are when it comes to uh, loving God and loving others. And uh, we need to do an accounting to see where we are uh, really at. The writer of Hebrews is trying to help us with that. And as you know already, uh, he has been writing to us uh, about doing an accounting of our affection uh, for the people of God. In verse number one, let brotherly love continue. He also wrote to us about doing an accounting of our uh, love for pilgrims, pilgrims and strangers in verse number two. To entertain strangers literally means to love strangers. In verse number three, he writes to us about doing an accounting of those who are persecuted and suffering. That is persecuted for the faith, going through all kinds of different kinds of suffering and adversity. The Bible tells us here, those who are suffering adversity, they need somebody to love them. And God's people ought to be the ones um, that are doing so. And so we have to do an accounting of our affection for the persecuted and the suffering. In verse number four, we've been discovering that we also need to do an accounting of our affection for our partner in life. I'm talking, of course, about the person that we are married to. That is our partner in life. We need to back up and take a look at where we're really at when it comes to loving our spouse. Now, some of you are married, and so this applies directly to where you're at in life. There are others of you that are not married, haven't been married at all, and someday you might be. And so you need to pay careful attention to what the Bible says. 
Some of you are widowed and may never get married again, but somebody's going to ask you, somebody's going to talk to you, and you may have an opportunity to speak to someone about what really makes marriage work. And you're going to have to reply to them that one of the things you've got to do is you've got to love uh, one another. And if you're going to love each other, you need to protect that affection that you have for one another. And uh, we've been trying to deal with that. We discovered that marriage is honorable. I dealt with the honor of marriage in the first part of verse number four, that marriage is really, really important. When the Bible says it's honorable, it's talking about the value or the importance of marriage. That marriage is valuable and important. And you and I went all the way back to Genesis chapter number one and worked our way forward and discovered not only at the start of creation, but in the sermons of Christ and also in the statements by Paul in Ephesians five, that marriage indeed is honorable and it should be honored by all of us. Everybody ought to honor marriage. But we also discovered a second truth in verse number four that we've been working on the last few services. And that is that marriage is not only honorable, uh, but also marriage is holy. The Bible says that the marriage, the marriage bed in verse number four is undefiled. And the Bible says in the last part that whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is holy. Remember what I mean by that. Just a reminder to you, when I say the marriage is holy, I mean two things. Number one, I'm talking about sinlessness and separateness. When I'm using the word sinless, what I mean is this, and that is the relationship, the intimate relationship within marriage is not sinful. It is undefiled or it is sinless. That is, when a man and a woman come together in marriage and they uh, enjoy intimacy one with another within that marriage, it is not a sinful thing. It is a sinless act within the boundaries of marriage. But when I say that marriage is holy, I mean not only sinlessness, but I'm talking about separateness. And that is that marriage is set apart. It is separate or set apart, ladies and gentlemen, from all other human relationships. And it is set apart for many reasons. But one reason why it is set apart is that this is the one relationship in which you and I are able to experience and express our gender to someone else. I'm talking about the fact that God created humanity with gender, male and female, and, and God created us with gender so that, we can, uh, so that we can engage in sexual activity. And as a result of that, there's not only the pleasure of sexual activity, there's the procreation that comes from that. And it's also a beautiful picture of the, one, of the oneness or the union that we have with Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, the only relationship that there is that God has designed us to express our sexuality, the only one there is, is the relationship of marriage. That's why it is set apart, holy. It is set apart from all other relationships. There's not another relationship that God says it's okay for us to express our gender, our sexuality, except just in this one relationship. Everything else is full of defilement. Everything else is sinful. Now, we find that the writer really nails that down for us in the last phrase of verse number four when he tells us that whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And we discovered that that word whoremonger is the word also translated fornication in the Bible. It comes from the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And it really is describing any kind, it's used to describe any kind of sexual immorality. In the context of this verse, it is obvious that's referring to unmarried people, those who are not married, who are engaged in sexual activity. That's fornication. 
And uh, the reason why we know that means that in this context is because we have the second word, and that's the word adulterer, which is describing somebody who is married, who is engaged in sexual activity outside the bounds of their marriage. So when you combine these two words, it's saying this. Whether you're married or whether you're single, any kind of sexual activity outside the relationship of marriage is outside the boundaries of God's will. And that's the reason why that God will judge it. The reason why they're under the judgment of God. And so if you and I are going to have a, if we're going to be able to do an accounting of our affection for our partner in life, if we're going to stop and evaluate ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to loving our spouse, one of the things that we have to do is we've got to be on guard against the problem of sexual immorality. Now, I know I've been speaking about this for a little while, and some of you are wondering, why is he ever going to get off of this? The reason why is because you and I are living in a society, ladies and gentlemen, where this is a huge problem. It is one of the number one problems we have. And that is sexual immorality in our society has been, ladies and gentlemen, exalted as being okay. It's been accepted as being all right. And so you and I have really got to deal with it in our life. And by the way, it's not just today. The New Testament churches in the first century had to deal with this as well. There was a problem of sexual immorality in the Roman culture. The Roman culture that was uh, pretty much controlled by Greek philosophy, ladies and gentlemen, was an adulterous, pornographic society. And as a result of that, Paul had to write to the churches in the New Testament, and over and over again, he had to deal with this problem of sexual immorality. And he did. And it's still a problem in our day, in our day as well. Now, as you and I have been looking at this, we've looked at what I call the, re- the revelation against sexual immorality. Going all the way back to the Old Testament law, you and I discovered God's commands against uh, adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We looked at what Jesus said about adultery. We also looked at all uh, the verses uh, that were written to the churches warning against adultery. The Bible reveals to us from the Old to the New Testament, there's this revelation against sexual immorality. We also spent some time uh, talking about the results of sexual immorality. When the Bible says that God will judge whoremongers, whoremongers and adulterers, uh, the Bible teaches us how he does that. And we spend a little bit of time just looking at the judgment of God in the Old Testament law, the judgment of God against the lost with regard to this. We discovered that there are results uh, in our lifetime, that is during our life for sexual immorality. That is the results of sexual immorality. And then we began looking at a remedy for sexual immorality. There's a remedy for the problem. This past Wednesday night, we began discovering this, and some of you were here, but many of you were not. There's a remedy for the problem of sexual immorality, and the number one remedy, the very first thing, is salvation. It is salvation. And the reason why is because when God saves a sinner, He forgives us of all of our sins. He not only forgives us of all of our sins, but the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us, ladies and gentlemen. And when He does, He gives us a new heart and a new life. The old heart is gone and we got a brand new heart. And there's something as a result of that, there is a desire on the inside of the child of God who's been born again, a desire for holiness, a desire to be holy in all the areas of our life. Now listen, you and I sometimes come short of holiness, but I tell you there's a desire on the inside of us to live a holy life. That's the reason why that the remedy for sexual immorality begins with salvation. 
Not only that, but we discover that the remedy for sexual immorality continues with sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is a Bible word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, and you can be turning over there. It is a word that means to be set apart or to be separated. It is a word that is like the word, comes from the same family of words as the word holy does. And that is um, that... um, that God has determined that those of you that are saved, that he's going to make you holy. As a matter of fact, positionally, he made you holy or set you apart at the moment of your conversion. And ever since you've been saved, God has been at work in your life, and his purpose is to make you holy in all the areas of your life. That's what sanctification is, and that's God's will for your life since you've been saved, is for you to be sanctified. Let me look at it with you in 1 Thessalonians 4 real quick. Notice what it says. The Bible says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you've received of us, how you ought to walk and please, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul said, remember when I was with you in Thessalonica? Remember the commandments that I gave you? I taught you how to walk. Now, he's not talking about the fact that they were crippled and had to learn how to walk. He's talking about the fact that he taught them how to live their life, the direction of their life in a direction that pleases God. And he says, so now I want to encourage you to abound more and more in what I taught you to grow and get completely out of bounds in the area of learning how to walk with God and please God. You say, well, what is it that he taught them about how to please God? He tells them in verse 3, for this is the will of God. This is it. This is what God's will is. This is what pleases the Lord, even your sanctification. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to walk in holiness. Well, he says in verse number 7, God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God's will for you is to be holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified or made holy in all the areas of your life. And then in verse number 3, he says this. He says, the will of God is your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, hang it right there for just a moment. Put your coat right there. Hang your hat right there on that statement, and I'll be back in just a moment. The Bible says the will of God is for you to be sanctified, and one of the primary areas of sanctification is abstaining from fornication. So if you and I are going to, the remedy for sexual immorality is not only salvation, that's where it begins. But also it continues with sanctification, becoming more holy, more like our Lord. Now those of you that were here Wednesday night, I talked about sanctification as being the work of the Savior. Well, the Bible says in 1 John chapter number 1, that our Savior, His blood, continually cleanses us from all sin. And if you and I will just confess our sins to Him, He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our Savior shed His blood on the cross so that you might be cleansed of sin in your life. He forgave you at the moment of your salvation and He is continually at work in your life cleaning you up and cleansing you of all unrighteousness. I said to you, it's not only the work of the Savior, but sanctification is the work of the Scriptures. The Bible in Ephesians chapter number 5 talks about the washing of water by the word. That our Lord is washing his church, cleansing us, getting all the stains out, ironing out all the wrinkles so that he might present it to himself a glorious church without any spot or without any wrinkle, holy and without blemish. And the means by which he does that is through the word of God. That is this sanctifying process It's a work of the Savior, it's a work of the Scriptures, and we discovered it's the work of the Spirit. 
And that is the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18, that the spirit of, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that you and I now, who have the Spirit of God living on the inside of us, are being changed or transformed from the inside out, from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. He is making us more like Jesus each day. It's not a fading glory. It is a continuing glory. From glory to glory. He's making you like Christ, conforming you to the image of Christ. So we've discovered the work of sanctification is the work of the Savior, and it's the work of the Scriptures. It's the work of the Spirit. But what I want you to preach, preach to you about this morning is that this is a work of the saints. A work of the saints. You say, well, Pastor, I wish the Lord, the Savior, would sure do that in my life. I sure wish the Scriptures would get to work in me. I sure wish the Spirit would work in me. Why don't you just go ahead and work on yourself? See, this isn't just a work of the Savior. It's not only a work of the Scriptures and of the Spirit. It's a work of the saints. You see, I use the word saint because that's what the Bible calls those of us who are saved. And it's a word, the word saint also comes from that family of words that means holy. That you are the holy ones. The saints are. You are. You're the ones that God has set apart as his holy nation, his holy people. And so if that's true, that is, if you're a holy nation, if you're a holy people, and that's what the Bible says, we're the saints. If that's true, then why don't you just start being holy? You say, oh, I'm waiting on God to to do that. Why don't you go ahead and start doing it yourself? It may be that God's given you everything you need to be holy, You just got to get at it. Start being holy. It's kind of like a little baby that's born and they've got everything they need to be able to walk. They've got legs, they've got muscles, they've got a brain, they've got everything they need to walk. But listen, the only reason why they're not walking is because of the fact they haven't gotten old enough or grown enough to be able to walk. And I, listen, some parents may take them off to the side and send a little Johnny, why don't you just get up and walk? Well, there comes an age, there comes a point in the life of little Johnny's, uh, little Johnny's life that that's exactly what parents do. They take little Johnny and say, Johnny, we're going to learn how to walk, stand up. And they pull him up by his arms and they start walking him around and trying to teach him how to use his legs. And you remember doing that. And then they start wobbling around. So you kind of set him and somebody near and you kind of let him go and take a few, a few uh, uh, steps and they begin to fall down. You begin to try to teach them how to walk. What I'm going to say to you, now listen to me now, those of you that are in this room, that are saved. You're old enough in the Lord. You're old enough to be holy. And you've got everything you need to be holy. You say, well, I got to grow. Listen, you've been saved long enough. You should have already been there. Now, I'm not talking about a sinless life, but I'm talking about sinning less. I'm talking about looking more like Jesus. And one of the areas that the Bible says that you and I need to be sanctifying ourselves, making ourselves holy, is in this area of sexual immorality. Listen again to what it says in verse number 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. This is it. This is what pleases the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain, that you should abstain from fornication. That you should do that. You say, well, when is God going to help me? He already has. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He put his spirit on the inside of you. He gave you a book that's a washing of the water of the word. He's given you everything you need. Now you get at it. Start abstaining from fornication. That word abstain means, ladies and gentlemen, abstinence. Abstain means abstinence. Now listen, when it comes to sexual activity, we all know what abstinence means. 
that means that I'm, going to, I'm not going to participate. And I would just guess that probably many in this room would say this, that when it comes to teaching sexual activity, that we believe that in the world that we live in, that if there's going to be sex education, that abstinence ought to be a part of sex education. That young people ought to be taught to abstain from sexual activity until they get married. And all God's people said, that's God's way and that's the right way. But listen to me now. Abstinence is not just for teenagers awaiting to get married. It is for those who are married as well. That means that outside the boundaries of marriage, abstinence is still a must. That is, if you're going to be sanctified, then you need to do this for yourself. You need to abstain, you yourself, to stay away from, to refrain from, to avoid and reject, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sexual immorality. Now, again, the culture is pushing this and teaching it's okay and, and everything's fine. Just protect yourself and make sure that somebody that's, you know, that's, uh, that wants to be involved with you. And, and, but it's all right other than that. And there are parents that teach that to their children, ladies and gentlemen. But I want to say to you that the Bible is clear. And that is that outside of this special set-aside relationship, we are to be practicing abstinence. We are to abstain from fornication or from sexual immorality. Now I want to talk to you about how to do that in practical terms. And that as a living in our kind, this society that we live in, how it is that we can be abstainers or abstinent when it comes to sexual immorality. How can we do that? I mean, I'm talking about what we can do. We know what the Lord's doing, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We know what the Word of God does, washes us like water. And we know what the Spirit is doing, transforming us into the image of Christ. But what can we do? Let me give you a few things. I've got seven things if I can get through them. And uh, they're straight from the Word of God, so they may be what we call seven from heaven. Are you ready? Number one, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that we need to flee from fornication. Now you'll find that in 1 Corinthians 6.18. The Bible is talking there about sexual immorality and that if you uh, commit sexual immorality, you're sinning against your own body and that, the, uh, that your body belongs to God and you shouldn't be using it for any purpose that doesn't glorify God. For that reason, you ought to, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. You ought to flee from it. You ought to run from fornication. Run from sexual immorality. I didn't say run to it. But run from it. Hey, if you're running to it, then you're headed for trouble. You got to run from it. Now, the reason why you have to run from it is not because you're so spiritual. I'm not saying to you that you need to become so spiritual that when you see uh, sexual immorality, you say, no, I'm too spiritual for that. The reason why you ought to run from it is because you're so weak. It's because you're so vulnerable. If you were so strong, you could just stand there and face it down. But you're not. You better get away from it. Now, listen, I'm not a big guy, and so I learned early on in my life, and that is that if you're going to get in a scrap with somebody, you better make sure that it's not somebody stronger than you. And there's no shame in running if you're going to have to fight somebody twice as big as you are. You're better off to run than you are to get beat up. Now, some of you may not believe that, but listen, you bear the marks of it. And still do, probably. When you're, listen, when you're headed into something bigger than you are, you better get back the other way. 
You better run the other way. And listen to me now, sexual immorality is too big and too powerful for those of us who are weak in the flesh. And listen, we need to run, get away from, stay away from, run, 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 get away from fornication, flee from fornication, be as wise, ladies and gentlemen, as Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember his story. He was a real man of integrity, men and ladies. If you want to look look at somebody who's really full of integrity, Joseph is your guy. He told the truth and wouldn't lie. Ladies and gentlemen, when he was approached by Potiphar's wife, remember him, he was in Egypt. I won't tell the whole story for the sake of time. I'll never get done. But Joseph was down in Egypt, sold by his brothers into slavery and into Potiphar's house. And Potiphar, his wife, took a liking to him as a single young man. She wanted to have a relationship with him, and he avoided her and stayed away from her and rejected her. He was abstaining from fornication. And there came a time, ladies and gentlemen, when the temptation was right there in front of him, and they were there all alone, and she got a hold of him and wanted him to have a relationship with her. And the Bible says that he he slipped out of his outer garment, his outer jacket, and left it in, in her hand that she had a hold of, and he ran out of there. Listen to me. Now, he was falsely accused later on of trying to be forward with her and As a result of that, he ended up uh, in the prison and God was sovereignly working through even the false accusations. But nevertheless, he taught us a lesson. And that is that when you and I find ourselves being tempted, that is in a position where the temptation is real, the right thing to do is don't stay around, don't face it down, just run. Get away from it. Now, some of you I know probably don't run very well. And I don't mean that always literally, even though at times you might literally need to run. From some circumstances. What I'm saying is get away from it. Get away from it. You're not strong enough to look at that and be around that. Get away from it. If you and I are going to give victory, ladies and gentlemen, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this work of sanctification in our own life so that we overcome sexual immorality, then number one, we've got to flee, flee from fornication. Number two, you and I are going to have to train our thoughts. That is, flee from fornication and now also train your thoughts. Sexual immorality begins in the mind. It begins with our thought life. Most of the time before there's ever any physical action, there, is, there are these uh, thoughts of the mind. And you and I need to train our thoughts. You say, Pastor, I don't know how, what you mean by that. I'm talking about controlling your thought life. You say, well, I just don't seem to be able to control my thought life. Then you must be an animal and not a person. So what do you mean? Well, animals live by pure instinct. That's the way God designed them. They live by instinct. You're not an animal. You don't live by instinct. You're a person who has a will and you're able to make decisions. You're able to make decisions based on your own will and not, ladies and gentlemen, just based on instinct. And so as a result of that, you can make some choices about what you're going to think about. And you can train your thought life so that you don't think about those things that you know you shouldn't be thinking about and worrying about those things you shouldn't be worrying about and focusing on those things that you shouldn't be focusing on. You don't have to allow your mind to go in whatever direction it wants to. You can train your thoughts. The Bible says as much in Philippians 4.8. Listen to what the Bible says there. 
In Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 8, listen to this verse, and I love this verse. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just or righteous, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on those things. There's a whole list of things that you're allowed to think about. If it doesn't line up with that list, you might want to train your thoughts not to focus on those things. You've got to train your thoughts. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 that there are those who have strongholds in their life. Strongholds. Those are areas in our life where the enemy has a, has a strong foothold into our life. When I'm talking about the enemy, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the devil and his demons. They get an area in, in your life where they can set up shop, where they can set up their fort, where they can set up and begin to attack your life. A stronghold. And the Bible says there that God has given us some mighty, powerful weapons, spiritual weapons to the, to the pulling down or destroying of strongholds, destroying them. The Bible says that we're able to tear down and destroy every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into thought, bring into captivity every thought. The way that we tear down strongholds, number one, ladies and gentlemen, there are times when there's demonic traffic that must be dealt with in a person's life. You say, Pastor, I don't know anything about that. Then you need to get with somebody and talk to somebody that knows something about dealing with demonic activity in a person's life that can help you get free from demonic strongholds and demonic traffic in your life. But ladies and gentlemen, not only that, but there's also the idea of training your thoughts or bringing every thought into captivity. That is, the devil operates through our flesh and uh, through our thought life. You need to bring every thought into... Listen, if those thoughts don't line up with Christ, they got to be gone. You can't... Just you got to train your mind to think those thoughts that line up with who our Savior is. you got to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. I'm trying to teach you some practical things that you and I can do in our own life so that we can abstain from fornication, not have anything to do with it, not allow it any place in our life. And I've said to you that we've got to flee from fornication. We've got to train our thoughts. Another thing that we have to do is examine our eyes. Examine our eyes. You say, Pastor, I don't know what you mean. Well, I mean, you need to go to the eye doctor and get your eyes examined. Except, listen, instead of going down to, uh, going down to, the, down to the place where they give you the glasses, just go ahead and you do it yourself. Do your own eye examination. You say, what do you mean? I mean, take a look at what you're looking at. Watch your eyes. Why, Peter wrote about those who have eyes full of adultery in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 14. And John warned us about the lust of the eyes in 1 John chapter number 2 and verse number 16. Remember that? The lust of the eyes, eyes full of adultery. Jesus said, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he has adultery already in his heart. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. You've got to examine your eyes. The Bible says in the Proverbs, these words of wisdom from the Proverbs, chapter 4 and verse 25, let thine eyes look right on, straight ahead, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. And the idea is, you better make sure you keep your eyes looking at the right things. Listen to me. If you start looking 
It's a short distance before you start lusting. And those who lust are opening the door to sexual immorality in their life. Listen to me. Stop looking at what you know you're not supposed to be looking at. Now, this is something you can do. So I sure wish God would help me. That's something you have to do. God's not going to come down and pluck your eyeballs out. God's not going to come down and lift your chin up to where it needs to be looking at. You've got to do that yourself. If you won't do it, then you're not going to be holy and sanctified. You're always going to have this stronghold in your life where the devil's always got an area that he can attack you in and attack you from. So what do we got to do? How are we going to abstain from this sexual immorality, fornication? How are we going to do it? Well, you got to flee from fornication. You got to train your thoughts. You've got to examine your eyes. You've got to separate yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, the Bible reveals to us about this man in the Corinthian church that was committing sexual immorality. You remember him? I read, we studied about him in a message not too long ago. He was committing sexual immorality. It was even embarrassing to lost people. He was in a relationship with his father's wife. And the people in the church just weren't dealing with it. And Paul said, you got to deal with this. You got to deal with it. And he explains to them the importance about how to deal with it. In verse number nine of that chapter, he says this, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company. Don't keep company with fornicators. Don't keep company with, separate yourself. Listen, those who are fornicators, those who are involved in sexual immorality, separate yourself from them. Don't keep company with them. The Bible commands us, don't keep company with them. He says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. He said, I'm not talking about those who are lost in the world. That is, if you were going to stay away from those folks who are in the world who are fornicators, you'd have to leave this world. You might as well go on to heaven because that's everywhere in our world. But he says, I've written unto you in verse number 11, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat or observe the Lord's supper with. Don't Listen, don't hang around with somebody who says they're a Christian, says they're your brother, but they're living in fornication. No, the Bible says in verse 12, what have I to do with, to judge them that are without, that is outside the church? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person, that man in the Corinthian church that says he's a brother that's living in sexual immorality. You need to put him out of the church and don't hang around with him and worship with him anymore until he repents and gets right. Now listen, that's a good principle for all of us, and that is that if you're going to be able to abstain from sexual immorality, then listen, you need to separate yourself from wicked people, from people that are living in sexual immorality. Don't hang around with them. Don't run with them. Make a, there needs to be a distance from them in your life. You say, well, pastor, how am I going to help them? It's not the issue of you helping them. It's how they're going to rub off on you. Now, if you were really super-duper Christian strong, that'd be great. But I have a feeling that most of us are probably weak when it comes to the flesh. And so to protect our flesh from temptation, the Bible indicates that we need to separate ourselves. We need to separate ourselves from wicked people. And we need to separate ourselves from worldly influences. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I should not be yoked up with unbelievers. Listen to what it says. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, the word of God is clear. In verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Don't get yoked up with unbelievers. That is, you're the opposite of them, like light and darkness are opposite of one another. You're opposite of the unbeliever. So don't get yoked up with them. That is like you put a yoke around animals' necks and two animals are pulling together with a yoke around them. Don't let the person you're yoked up with, committed to, that you're hooked up with, don't allow that to be something somebody who's an unbeliever that's going in a different direction than what you are. That is, as a child of God, you want to go in the direction of holiness, of sexual purity. You want to go in that direction. And here's this unbeliever. And listen, they're moving in the direction of ungodliness and giving into sexual impurity and temptation. Don't yoke up with them. And here's the reason why. It's because they're going to start pulling you in that direction. You got to separate yourself from worldly Influences. The Bible says in verse 17 of that chapter, you need to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and I'll be a father to you. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going to be your father. Uh, and so you need to set yourself apart from that which is ungodly. I'm trying to teach us now in a very abbreviated form how it is that we can avoid sexual immorality. I've said to you, you need to flee from fornication. I've said to you that we need to train our thoughts. I've said to you that we need to examine our eyes, what we're looking in. I've said to you that we need to separate ourselves. That is separating ourselves from wicked people and also from worldly influences. Let me just mention to you another thing, and that is that we need to step after the Spirit. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter number 5 that here's the answer. Here's what we can do to avoid sexual immorality in our life. Well, the Bible says in verse 16, This I say, then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How am I going to deal with this in my life? I need to get in step with the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says walk in the Spirit, that means I need to be stepping with the Spirit. That is, wherever the Spirit is going, that's where I need to step. Listen, the Bible says in the next verse that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary to one another. Here's what that means. The desires of the spirit are opposite of the desires of our old rotten flesh. And our flesh wants to move us in one direction, and listen, the spirit wants to move us in another direction. And you get to decide which direction you're going to get going. The spirit of God is not going to grab you by the collar and make you go in this direction. You get to decide. As a child of God, am I going to walk in step with my flesh? Or am I going to walk in step with the Holy Spirit? You get to decide. You say, Pastor, I don't know what to do or how to do that. Well, just say to your flesh, that is your flesh desires after sexual immorality. Your flesh is selfish and desires after wickedness and corruption. And you say no to your flesh. And listen to me now. Instead, you yield self to the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of you. You learn how to yield to the Holy Spirit. You learn how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. You get to know the Holy Spirit, how to yield to the Holy Spirit, how to refuse the desires of the flesh, how to put to death or mortify the desires of the flesh and walk in the Holy Spirit. You got to step after the Spirit. Let me mention another thing, and I'm getting close to the end, aren't I? That is that you and I not only need to flee from fornication, we not only need to train our thoughts and examine our eyes and separate ourselves and step after the Spirit, but we've got to walk in the Word. 
walk in the word. Well, the Bible says, wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? It's Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. We discovered in Ephesians 5 that, the, that Paul said that the word of God is like water that washes the stains out of our life. And so if you and I are going to get cleaned up, in any area of our life, and that includes and especially in the area of sexual immorality, then we've got to walk in the Word. That is, you and I have got to get into the Word, and we've got to let the Word of God get into us. We've got to saturate our lives with the Word of God. I'm talking about reading the Bible. I'm talking about studying the Bible. I'm talking about hearing the Bible, being taught and preached. Our lives being saturated with this book. You've got to walk in the Word. i got one more thing. I said to you, there's seven. And if I counted right, this is it. I said to you that if you're not going to avoid sexual immorality, we've got to flee from fornication. That's number one. We've got to train our thoughts. That's number two. We've got to examine our eyes. That's number three. We've got to separate ourselves. That's number four. We've got to step after the Spirit, walk in step with Him. That's number five. We've got to stay and walk in the Word. That's number six. And number seven is you've got to come to Christ. You, have to, you say, Pastor, I already did that. I came to Christ many years ago, and that's when he saved me. But you need to keep on coming to him. Keep on coming to Christ. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, in Hebrews chapter number 4. The Bible says in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a high, great high priest that's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, At the right hand of the Father, because of that, he says, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Oh, yeah, our high priest, Jesus, at the right hand of God, he knows what we're struggling with. Well, the Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we are. Yet, without sin. Do you know, seated at the right hand of the throne of God is the God-man, the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says he was tempted like we are, yet never, ever sinned. So the next verse says, let us therefore, because of that, come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Here's what the Bible saying. When temptation comes, come to Christ. Just come to him. Come boldly to his throne. You have access. Come boldly to his throne. And get before him. Surrender to him. Yield to him. Cry out to him. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you all the grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. You say, well, pastor, what if it doesn't work? What do you mean if it doesn't work? We're talking about him. If you come to him and cry out to him and surrender to him, there's nothing that he can't do. There's no temptation that he can't help you get through. There's no kind of trouble that he can't give you the victory over. If you'll come to him. I'm trying to help us learn. The remedy. For sexual immorality. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word and your people and what you're saying to us and how you're working in us. And God, I pray that you'd speak loudly to our hearts, work your work in us. You know where we're at. You know where our hearts are. God, you know all about the affection of our hearts. And so I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, that you'd move among us, those that are lost, that have never met Jesus, that you'd draw them to yourself. God, you'd let them see how sinful they are, how stained their soul is, and how desperately they need you to forgive them, become the Lord of their life. And God, I pray, Father, that you'd operate upon the hearts of your redeemed. God, those areas of stronghold will be destroyed. Father, you teach us, Lord, how to live a life of holiness for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.